Happy New Year from the far middle. We're almost there at least. Our dedication for this week's episode is as much history as it is sports. And the dedication explores a subject that is a forgotten chapter from a long ago era in American sports, specifically baseball. Just before World War I, there was only two major leagues in baseball, the American and National Leagues, and they openly colluded. And the game itself, and certainly its economics, were quite different than what we are familiar with today. The power in baseball at the time was heavily in the owner's hands during that era, and the sport was hugely popular but tightly controlled. It's effectively a monopoly pushing out other competition. So when you combined owners having huge leverage over players with competition being stifled in a popular business with great national demand, it creates an environment that is perfect for a new interloper to come onto the scene, to challenge the establishment and status quo. It's the American way and how capitalism works. That's the recipe of ingredients that convened and triggered the fascinating story of the Federal League of Baseball Clubs, known simply as the Federal League an American professional baseball league that played its first season as a minor league in 1913 and then operated as a third major league in competition with the established national and American leagues from 1914 to 1915. Now, the Federal League was tagged by critics as the Outlaw League. It allowed players to avoid the restrictions of the National and American League's reserve clause, which gave almost complete control of the economic rent to the owners of the expense or to the expense of even the biggest names and the biggest stars in the game. And the competition of another better-paying league, well, that caused players' salaries to skyrocket, and it was one of the first clear demonstrations of the bargaining potential of free agency. And this, of course, occurred way before Curd Flood was even born. Now, the established leagues, they weren't going to take the new competition laying down. They tried to impede and interfere big time and ultimately caused the Federal League to fold after the 1915 season. And this resulted in a landmark federal lawsuit, Federal Baseball Club versus the National League, in which the United States Supreme Court ultimately ruled that the Sherman Antitrust Act did not apply to Major League Baseball. The suit was originally presided over by federal judge at the time, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who, interestingly, eventually became the first commissioner of baseball in the early 1920s. And the lawsuit had languished for years, long after the Federal League went kaput, And finally, in 1922, the Supreme Court ruled in Federal Baseball Club versus National League that Major League Baseball and its constituent leagues were primarily entertainment, not conventional interstate commerce, and thus they were going to be exempt from the Sherman Antitrust Act. So Major League Baseball remains the only North American sport league with such a status, and it's not faced any competition in terms of other leagues since then, unlike the other pro sports leagues because of this exemption, all because of the Federal League back before World War I. So the Federal League also brings a bit of constitutional law and Supreme Court history to the table in what many reference as the Federal League's first of two silent monuments. We'll get to that second silent monument in a minute. Now, the Federal League would be the last independent major league outside the established structure of professional baseball to make it to the playing field, And it would be the last serious attempt to create a third major league until the abortive Continental League in 1960. Now, who were some of the teams in the Federal League? Check out some of these names. You had the Baltimore Terrapins, the Pittsburgh Stogies, who became the Pittsburgh Rebels, the Newark Peppers, 
and the St. Louis Terriers, the Brooklyn Tip Tops, and the Chicago Whales. Some of the Hall of Fame players who played in the Federal League include Chief Bender, Joe Tinker, and Mordecai Brown. And probably the most famous remnant of the long-forgotten Federal League, it's that second silent monument that I referenced, is one of the most beloved and hallowed locations in all of baseball. Perhaps the most famous ballpark in baseball was originally built for a Federal League team, and that's Wrigley Field, home of the Chicago Cubs. Wrigley Field began its long life as Wiegman Park, the home of the Chicago Whales, back in 1914. The original seating capacity was only 14,000, and it was named Wiegum originally after the owner of the Chicago Whales, who then, after the federally collapsed, was allowed to acquire and merge his old team with the Chicago Cubs, and then they moved the Cubs to the new ballpark in town without a team. It was renamed Wrigley Field in the 1920s after the Chewing Gum family gained full control of the Cubs. Now, Wrigley is the only remaining park left from the failed Federal League. And next time you see Wrigley Field on TV or you visit it in person, remember it would not have been built but for the pioneering risk takers of the Federal League. So our dedication for episode numero 136 of the Far Middle is to the failure, that wonderful experiment, that risk-taking endeavor by doers in the chaotic world of free market American capitalism, that intriguing historical artifact of professional sport that no one remembers, the Federal League. I hope you enjoyed that dedication, and you might have noticed I've been taking a more off-the-field and historic angle with recent uh, dedications. I'm thinking that the right dedication subjects that tie sport and off-the-field history together That's going to be of interest to all constant listeners, not just the sports fans among us. And more than one of you have told me you love the far middle, but you aren't super interested in sports or the dedication at the start of each episode. So choosing these types of dedication attempts to bridge that gap. Now, let's start making our connections in the perpetual honor that we pay in the far middle to Dr. James Burke of BBC Connections fame, the business model of baseball back in the 19-teens when the Federal League was making its failed run. It was heavily stacked, as I said, in favor of the owners. And they didn't need to spend big to make big bucks, so they didn't at the expense of the players. Let's make our first connection from the business model of baseball then to the business model of baseball today. We see quite the contrast. And today's business model for baseball often reflects, in many instances, the business models of many corporations and governments, including local, state, and national government, and none of it is sustainable. Cracks are starting to show in the world of baseball, and the fair city of San Diego and its team, the Padres, are Exhibit A. A little background that led up to where the stress state of the Padres' finances now sit. Peter Seidler was the controlling owner of the Padres starting about four years ago, And he had baseball royalty lineage, being the grandson of Walter O'Malley of Brooklyn and L.A. Dodgers fame. And like many owners, Seidler wanted to win the World Series so bad he could taste it. And he put his money where his mouth was. So Seidler basically took on the attributes and spending of a big market team like Los Angeles or New York, but applied it to small market San Diego. He spent hugely to swipe big-name free agents that normally were the exclusive domain of those handful of big-market teams, and it added up. Last season, the Padres had a larger payroll than any other team not named the New York Mets or the New York Yankees. 
Seidler had five, count them, five players on the Padres that were signed to guaranteed contracts worth $100 million or more each. Guaranteed, mind you, to a cumulative in excess of half a billion dollars for five players in San Diego. Wow. He said, I kind of like spending money and you can't take it with you. Seidler was battling uh, various serious illnesses for some time. And I guess he took the approach of you only live once, I suppose. He sadly passed away in mid-November of this year, and he left this earth without winning that World Series that, uh, that he so desired. And his beloved Padres were in trouble from his unsustainable business model that was applied in an attempt to quickly win that title. Now, a lot of people saw the trouble coming. Other owners in Major League Baseball did, especially those from smaller market teams. They didn't like what the Padres were doing, not just because it was unsustainable, but because it probably made the excuse of being a small market team no longer valid for those franchises when it came to sort of going after the uh, the big name players. And the baseball commissioner, the commish, he saw trouble coming for the Padres as well. Here's what Rob Banford said during spring training earlier this year. Quote, the trick for smaller markets has always been sustainability. Hats off to Peter Seidler. He's made a massive financial commitment personally to make this all happen. The question becomes, how long can you continue to do that? And what happens when you have to go through a rebuild? End quote. Seidler, he ignored the critics, including a commish, and replied with the following. Putting a great and winning team on the field in San Diego year after year is sustainable. I'm sorry to say, no, it's not sustainable, at least not the way Seidler did it. Um, although the Padres finished with a record home attendance of nearly 3.3 million, that was second in the major leagues. Only the LA Dodgers had better attendance. The Padres record was only a few games over 500. They missed the playoffs and the season was a disappointment on the field. But the bigger problems loomed off the field and on the financial statements. The Padres lost their regional sports network in May and Major League Baseball had to take over their local broadcasts. You had Diamond Sports Group, which was supposed to pay the Padres over $50 million in 2023 for the right to air games. They ended up declining to make a contractually obligated payment because they were moving through bankruptcy. And MLB subsidized 80% of what the Padres were owed, but that subsidy is going to stop next season. So the Padres needed bailed out, basically, by the league. And now there's no path for the Padres to regain that lost revenue from TV this coming season which is the major source of funding to pay for those massive roster payrolls that the Padres took on. So the Padres, mimicking free-spending corporations and governments these days, they are learning to rely on debt to survive. Back in September, the team took out a $50 million loan to cover their end-of-season expenses. The team's CEO uh, said the Padres at the time, quote, established a capital plan for 2023 with our ownership group and lender partners and are operating our business in accordance with that plan, end quote. Now, there's some corporate speak for you if I've ever seen it. And rest assured, the Padres are going to need to cut spending too, which means letting go of those marquee players as soon as they're able to do so. Uh, the team plans to lower its 2024 payroll next year from the current $250 million down to $200 million or so which means they're going to need to trade or not resign the stars. So there goes the game plan and business model for winning a World Series title. And it is striking how similar the failed business model and state of the Padres is to a government, say, like Illinois or New York City. 
or corporations that are sitting on shaky business plans or with the higher education model of today. The cash flows, they're in the wrong direction. And as soon as the slightest of speed bumps are encountered, a bailout from a higher authority has to occur, either directly through MLB with the, uh, the Padres example or indirectly through subsidy from the federal government with the Illinois and the New York cities of the nation. And debt is used to bridge the cash flow gaps, but there's no plan as to how the cash flow gets balanced anytime soon. The debt basically is just kicking the can down the road, just like we see in business these days with the WeWorks and just about every electric vehicle manufacturer that you can think of. And then the product suffers for the paying customer fan on the field, just like is now often the case with higher education that's cutting curriculum and attempts to try to plug budget gaps created by out-of-control spending. Yes, the, uh, the Padres are in quite the mess by following the unsustainable fiscal path. And it didn't take long, did it? A few short years of ignoring the basics was all that it took. Now, who knows how long it takes to fix and where it's going to lead. The Padres dilemma will help us make our next connection to a similar financial disaster, but this time with a nation. And the nation is Argentina. Argentina has been a mess for some time and has suffered both default on debt and hyperinflation, and more than once. The root causes of Argentina's woes are a toxic cocktail of massive government borrowing and lax monetary policy and inflation. Does that sound like the Padres? You know, the team borrowed to plug its deficit. It engaged in massive inflation with player salaries, and it was more than lax with securing revenue streams to cover the long-term guaranteed money commitments that it made. Also, Argentina got itself into trouble with another root cause, what economists call fiscal dominance. Now, fiscal dominance is where its central bank is subordinated to the politics of the treasury and the presidency, sort of how the Padres became beholden to the whims of its now deceased owner. Argentinians, they've had enough of the mess that their government got them into with the road to fiscal ruin. And recently, you may have noticed that Argentina elected the populist Javier Mali to the presidency. The media said it would be a tight race, but it was pretty much a blowout. I suppose that's what happens when your opponent was a leftist who was minister of the economy. And again, that's an economy suffering from 100 plus percent inflation. And the media disdained for the new president because he is conservative. Um, that's apparent. But I got to tell you, I'm rooting for him. Uh, the new president has promised to end inflation by replacing the peso with the dollar and abolishing the central bank. And he's a rare politician who promised to bring the national finances back to something resembling a sustainable path, sort of like what the Padres' new leadership is now promising fans. Time will tell as to how successful each effort becomes. Now, the elites and experts, they look at Argentina and gasp because they abhor populists like the new president, Millet, in Buenos Aires. And the same experts and elites say what happened to Argentina's economy and government finances could never happen to the United States. So let's make our next connection doing a little compare and contrast between Argentina down there and the United States up here. I think you'll find the two nations have much more in common when it comes to fiscal woes than the experts and elites will have you believe. So first, realize Argentina's budget deficit which is projected to be at around 5% of GDP this year, is actually smaller as a share of GDP than the U.S. deficit. And how about accumulated government debt to GDP? Argentina is sitting at 85%. The United States at 120%. 
we're in a much deeper hole. Second, the Argentinian Congress, they may end up resisting the president's plans to make the government finances sustainable, which the critics of the new president, they love to point that out as being an impediment. But that's the same that we see in the United States, where our Congress can't agree on anything beyond short-term stopgap emergency extensions to avoid shutdowns these days. Third thing to consider, the experts and elites say that Argentina and the Argentinian plan will never work because the problem of government deficits, they won't be ultimately fixed until government budgets are balanced, which means cutting spending significantly. And that's not going to happen in Argentina without reforming subsidies and pensions, which is politically painful or political suicide. But compare that to here in the United States, where we are going to post a $2 trillion deficit this year using the accurate math of student loan adjustments. And if you think Argentina has a problem with spending and deficits, then the U.S. should horrify you. And at least the new president in Argentina, Malay, has promised to take a chainsaw to public spending. Heck, he campaigned with a chainsaw for goodness sake. He's known as Chainsaw Man. Do you think our president has any urge whatsoever to even slightly contain spending? And the one before him, and the one before him. It's the only thing they all agree on. Outspend now and let someone else worry about it later. At least in Argentina, there's now political will at the top to cut government spending. None exists here or has existed for decades. Here's a fourth thing to consider. How about inflation? Well, again, Argentina suffers from bouts of hyperinflation, 100 plus percent, which is a true nightmare. It's insane. But what about how inflation has been stoking for some time now in the United States? And much of that inflation driven by inept policies that are rooted in energy and climate and higher education and entitlements. If you think inflation has magically disappeared from the U.S. radar, think again. Argentina's inflation nightmare might be coming to an end while the United States dream may just be starting to rev up, as indicated by the treasury yields of late in the bond market. And more on that in a minute and in an upcoming connection. And then the last thing to consider, there's that issue that I mentioned about the central banks and easy money playing root causes and root cause roles in Argentina. And yes, here in the United States with respect to fiscal messes. The new president in Argentina, he's looking to abolish the central bank there. Yet in the United States, the experts and elites, they like to smugly state that the Fed is independent from the president and is immune from pressure from the White House. That's hogwash. The Fed doesn't feel pressure from the White House these days because the Fed is in a complete agreement with and a comrade in arms with the White House. So what's worse, I ask you, a populist president looking to try to sway the central bank or a left-leaning president whose politics and ideology mirror that of the elite cocoon of the central bank leadership, whereby they work in total lockstep. I don't know which one's worse. It's debatable. And since 2008, we've had pretty much the latter in the United States, and the bill is going to come due. And when it does, it's going to be of a magnitude never seen before in modern history. That's with $33 trillion in debt, $2 trillion in annual deficits, in easy-to-free monetary policy for 15 years, in policies that stoke inflation, that's what they're going to do to a nation, its finances, and its economy. So don't cry for Argentina just yet, constant listeners. See how its newly elected leader does, even if the elites are rooting against him because he isn't part of that club or of the left. But worry greatly for America until we wake up and course correct, if we wake up in time, that is. 
which leads right smack into our next connection for this episode. What is the Fed going to do with interest rates in 2024? So let's retrace the trail in incompetence at the Fed so far. First, the Fed institutes what it called emergency measures back during the global financial crisis in 2008-2009, setting up an era of free money that lasts effectively to this day, with interest rates set below inflation, meaning negative real interest rates. Now, that distorts capital flows in the economy. It favors the 1% that uses their balance sheets to lever to their advantage, and it hurts the mom-and-pop savers. 15 years of emergency measures. Now, the Fed not only refuses to critique excessive government spending and deficit running as unsustainable, in many instances, the Fed applauds doing so, especially if the person in the White House is of the Fed's ideological persuasion, shall we say. But even that really doesn't matter because Presidents Obama, Trump, and Biden all ratcheted up the spending year after year with little regard to basic fiscal considerations, and the Fed sat silent or cheered them on. An elite's critique Argentina's central bank is being influenced by the political class? Please. Then, U.S. inflation stoked up, as it inevitably does when you have excessive periods of free money and negative real rates, when government spends excessively and massively, and when the central bank refuses to even mildly criticize budgets and policies that crumble fiscal health. But the Fed said, don't worry, this inflation is just transitory, and inflation proceeded to get worse, much worse. But now all the experts out there, from Wall Street to elite business media to the Beltway Bandits in D.C., they're all saying that inflation is tamed and the Fed is able to start cutting rates. And the stock market loves that news and thought. So does the bureaucratic state, because all that government debt needs refinanced and lower rates mean interest on the debt payments will be lower than with higher rates. So government can keep funding its excessive spending via the regulatory state on the cheap. And you know who else loves it? the 1% in corporate America, and those with high net worths. They love the thought of tamed inflation and Fed cutting rates because like they've been doing since 2008-2009, they can apply their assets and balance sheets to take advantage of, to arbitrage, the free money policies. So everyone wants a reduction in rates and cuts from the Fed. So everybody starts saying and clinging to data points to make the point that inflation is slowing or dropping hoping the fire is put out by the modest increase in rates recently, and now we can back to get back to partying by returning the central bank punch bowl uh, to the economy. So CNBC is predicting that rates will be cut. Ivy League economists are justifying doing so. Wall Street bank analysts, they're injecting it into all of their models and plans. The bureaucratic state, from the Treasury Department to the EPA, they're rooting for it. And Congress absolutely needs it so it can avoid having to rein in spending and deficits. Yeah, they all want rate cuts now, constant listeners. But wanting it and getting it are two different things. Oh, I'm convinced the Fed will try to start to cut rates soon. It's part of that elite club that I just went through. But inflation doesn't care. In fact, inflation will flare even more if rate cuts start too soon. If the Fed starts to cut, I think bad inflation might get worse, much worse. And the price of everything is already up and continuing to go up. Try eating out. Um, Go buy some groceries in a store. Look at the cost or the price of cars, labor rates, energy, any imaginable service, basically, everything. And at some point, the central bank can say inflation is in line and it can start cutting rates. 
But the bond market, that might have a different view of things, and it might start to revolt. So watch treasury yields. If they don't fall in line with rate cuts, if and when those occur, then the market in the real world, they're calling the bluff of the elites and the Fed. If that happens, look out, because then the credibility of the central bank is lost, and our status as fiat currency that allowed us to act like financial remedial students for so long, that's going to be seriously damaged. Now, that will be a tough environment for all indeed. Yet at some point, we must all accept the dire situation that our leaders have placed us in. And then we need to stop digging deeper into the hole, get our fiscal house in order, make the tough but logical moves, and start to emerge toward a sustainable path. All this takes is the most precious ingredient of all of these days, constant listeners, which is will. Time to count down toward the end of episode 136 of The Far Middle, Sort of like in an honor of this upcoming New Year's Eve in a few days, I suppose. And speaking of the last day of the year, let's wish an early happy birthday to Sir Philip Anthony Hopkins. He was born on New Year's Eve, 31 December in 1937. And most of us watch him perform, and we view him as a sophisticated, refined British gentleman of high culture. But that wasn't how he was brought up. His family was working class. And Hopkins stated his father's working class values have always underscored his life. He once said in an interview, whenever I get a feeling that I may be special or different, I think of my father and I remember his hands, his hardened, broken hands. Love that quote. And what an actor, right? We may have discussed this in prior episodes of The Far Middle. The greatest of his generation? Maybe. Certainly one could reasonably argue such. Yeah, everyone knows his um, Hannibal Lecter role in Silence of the Lambs, which, by the way, that movie was filmed in and around Western Pennsylvania. But Hopkins has a much wider body of work, some unbelievable roles. He did some great World War II work. He played a part in A Bridge Too Far. That was an epic World War II film. And he also played Hitler in the British TV series The Bunker. But I think his best least known work, there's a category for you, best least known work was his role of the doctor in The Elephant Man. Check that movie out from 1980. It's a classic. David Lynch was the director. That's David Lynch of Twin Peaks fame. I think Twin Peaks, by the way, one of the greatest series in the history of TV. But back to Hopkins and The Elephant Man movie. It's a biographical drama about Joseph Merrick. He was a severely deformed man in late 19th century London. And here's a cool fact about that film. It was produced by none other than Mel Brooks. Yeah, that's a weird fit, wouldn't you think? And so did the studio. They thought it was a weird fit because Brooks was uncredited to avoid audiences anticipating that the film was going to be in the vein of a comedy work. Although his company, Brooks Films, that does appear in the opening credits. So no one would confuse The Elephant Man with, say, Blazing Saddles, but they do share a common thread with Mel Brooks. The Elephant Man was a critical and commercial success, Um, Eight Academy Award nominations, eight, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Actor. And after receiving widespread criticism for failing to honor the makeup effects in the movie, the Academy of Motion Picture, Arts, and Sciences, they were prompted to create the Academy Award for Best Makeup the following year. So happy birthday to the New Year's Eve baby, Anthony Hopkins, and a happy new year to all of you. Signing off and saying later to 2023 and back at you in a new 2024.